As usual, a lot of things to discuss on this week's episode of the OHL podcast. We've got teams making moves, and is it just me, or are they making moves earlier? A second coach has been let go. That's about a week old news, but it came down just as we finished recording last week's episode. But Dan Mahar and I are going to start this week on something that I think should be a small issue. In fact, it's literally a small item, but it's sending big waves through the Ontario Hockey League. Dan Mahar is over there. You'll find him on Twitter at Tim Wallach. My name is Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. Dan, let me start with you. I'll just throw it at you. Can you make heads or tails? Can you make any sense out of this mouth guard violation that has led to, count them, unless I missed one last night, 22 10-minute misconducts issued this week alone, including three times in some games? The short answer is probably not. I, Whenever you see some huge crackdown like this coming, usually there's some sense behind it. You saw, you know, there's been a couple of a spate of injuries. We're going to crack down on hits from behind or headshots, or there's some logic or rationale that was out there for the world to see that said, yep, they're taking action. With the mouth guard thing, it's really hard to understand. The nearest I could figure was we'd seen a couple full cages, couple missing teeth. Was there an edict league-wide about some of the uh, dental work that's had to be done recently? That's as near as I can come to making any sense of it, Mike. So it, it suddenly showed up. And I know this much from being around the rinks. A memo was sent to all teams last week, letting them know that this crackdown was coming. Basically, it's upon us. And in fairness, this is a new rule in the Ontario Hockey League this year. It is clearly spelled out. It makes it perfectly clear to all parties that failure to either wear a mouth guard at all or wear one properly will result in the assessment of a 10-minute misconduct. So it's not as though the rule was invented out of thin air. It's on the books, and the teams were sent the memo last week letting them know that the crackdown is now in place. What I can't get my head around is why the crackdown is happening now a quarter of the way through the season in late-ish November. Why wouldn't you, especially with the introduction of this rule, have the crackdown starting day one, game one? Why wasn't this happening, in other words, in late September instead of late November? Well, I uh, the nearest I can figure is, so maybe this edict or this rule change came in the offseason based on input from insurers, that kind of thing. Maybe said insurers evaluated the first month of play in the season said, Hey, wait a minute, guys, this is not being enforced. Get on it. The refs were the last to kind of get the message that this is actually something we want you to call. Who knows? All I know, I know two things. Someone somewhere said, we got to start calling this. And two, Francesco Pinelli did not read the memo. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I know about it. The Kitchener Rangers captain getting the mouth guard infraction in back to back games. Back-to-back games, a 10-minute misconduct to your team captain. Not good. You said something there, Dan, two things that I want to get into a little bit further. One is the refs, and the message got to the refs to call this. I'll get to that in a moment. But what you said about insurers, I, I don't know this for certain, but I strongly suspect, okay, that what you just touched on with insurers is what is driving this we can talk about safety all you want and sure obviously if you're wearing your mouth guard your jibs your chiclets your teeth 
are better protected. And also, as we know, mouth guards make up a part of concussion protocol or concussion prevention. It's an important, as small as it is, it can play a role in helping prevent concussions as well with head impact, jaw impact, whatever. However, as much as you want to talk about safety, make no mistake. Dollars and cents drive this game, this business like any other. And you can bet your bottom dollar that the league is on the hook for liability if the worst comes to pass and the itsy bitsy teeny weeny seemingly up until now insignificant mouth guard played a part in that. So I believe, again, I don't have this confirmed, but I believe very strongly that liability is a huge, huge part of this. I think logically it has to be, Mike. You look, they always say whenever you want an answer to any question you can't figure out, follow the money. And then obviously player safety and those things are a key factor that everyone's concerned about. But at the end of the day, the the real driver is money. And you have insurers saying, well, we we may or may not pay out this claim if if you haven't done these things. And you may have lawsuit concerns down the road related to concussion, CTE, anything around that, that realm. So definitely the insurers had to have played a role in what we're seeing the last week. So what we have seen the last week has fans a little bit confused. I've lost track of the number of messages I've received wondering what the heck is going on and why this is being called. So I can tell you this for certain, it did come down from on high as in on very high. That's why the teams got memos that, okay, the crackdown is coming, but you mentioned the refs earlier, Dan, and I want to get into that a little bit further here too. Because I believe very strongly that the refs want no part of calling this infraction. Not that they don't care about player safety, not that they don't care about what the league has in the rule book, but because they have got so many more things and so many bigger things to worry about on a game to game basis that they would rather not be diming guys for having a mouth guard dangling out of their mouth in the face off circle. I don't think they want any part of this. No, it's like if you take a, a traffic cop and say you want him to start hammering jaywalkers. I, I I think for the most part, these guys trade somewhat on relationships and they have relationships with the players and the coaches. And every single time they blow the whistle for this type of thing, they're eroding those relationships a little bit. Like you said, there's a lot to go into game management and how everything else they have to deal with to to properly call an OHL hockey game. This just seems like one more thing and one more thing that they might not fully see the point behind. So uh, I guarantee you, you're right, Mike. They don't want anything to do with calling these uh, routinely. And they're hoping that the players just kind of figure it out on their own. And who becomes the scapegoat in that arena when the 10-minute misconduct gets announced? 100%. 100% of the time. It's not somebody sitting in an office (laughs) in the league offices in Scarborough. That's for sure. (laughs) No, it's 100%. The refs get the blame every time. And, you know, this is... Lots to criticize the refs about all the time, but this is one of those things where it seems pretty black and white. They're not inventing these things out of thin air. They're reading the interpretation they were given by the league, the orders they were given by the league, and they're calling it when they see it. So it's not vindictive against any player or coach. It's uh, This one's on, like you said, the, the orders from on high and those who have not quite caught on yet. Okay, so I'm going to go a little bit rogue here and take a, a, a bit of a hot take on this because I just, I find it so almost fascinating. Again, the timing of it is just so weird. Okay, all of a sudden, a quarter of the way through the season, we're going to start applying this rule and you better do it. And 
instead of, you know, after the memo was issued to teams, the refs are responsible for calling it. What if, what if instead of putting the onus on the officials on the ice to call misconducts, you have somebody, maybe the supervisor, or maybe the officials just make the notes during a game. And then at the end of that game, players X, Y, and Z who had a mouth guard infraction, the team gets served a notice of that along with a subsequent fine of whatever amount, 200 bucks, 500 bucks. I don't know what the amount would be that would be significant enough, but what it ends up doing, if you take the onus off the on-ice officials and put the onus onto the teams, then it becomes an issue where you're saying, hey, teams, make sure your players are properly equipped before they get on the ice. Don't make us police a dangling mouth guard. You take care of your own house before those guys step on the ice. If you don't, we're going to fine you. And I think that maybe if those fines were being assessed at the team level, at the team ownership or executive level, it trickles down to the players that way instead of making the officials deal with this on the ice. I don't know how outrageous that is, but that's kind of where I'm at with this. Yeah, and I think to go along with that point, at least that way you're not penalizing the fans who bought tickets to the hockey game and are now missing the exploits of some pretty good hockey players because their mouth guard was dangling in that game. You're dealing with it after the fact, you're figuring it out later, you're you're still penalizing the team and getting your point across, but you're not having a game's flow and outcome disrupted because a 17-year-old forgot to to keep it in the mouth for a few seconds. So, yeah, I think that just furthers that point. There might be another way to deal with it. We all know what flows downstream, right? And this just goes to show, you talk about fans getting a little bit confused or maybe even shortchanged on the price of their ticket when good players are missing for 10 minutes at a stretch. But from the league offices on down, this comes to the communication that happens in an arena when an official is telling a public address announcer, for example, that this misconduct has just been issued. The public address announcer doesn't know what memo was issued to the teams, and he or she may or may not announce mouth guard violation so the fans understand what the misconduct was for, even though they're not sure of this penalty because it seems so brand new. So I think fans end up getting really confused over this, and I don't love that, which is another reason I would rather see this be dealt with at the team level. I'm going to go even a step further here, and this is unlike me because usually I'm a consequences action kind of guy. You do the crime, you do the time, so to speak, and it's pretty black and white in the rule book. If your mouth guard is non-existent or it's dangling from your mouth, not being worn properly, it's a 10-minute misconduct. But I don't know about you. I've had some bad habits in my life. In fact, I'm going to be really honest here. Even as we were recording this episode, I was finishing off the picking of one of my fingernails. I bite my nails. And if you told me today that effective tomorrow, every time I bit my nails or picked one off my finger, it's going to cost me whatever, a 10-minute misconduct, it would be really hard for me to stop in an instant. So a player who might watch Brady Kachuk in the National Hockey League with his mouth guard always dangling and picks up the habit, if you will, of chewing on that mouth guard. And all of a sudden you're going to tell them you can't do that, not even in the face-off circle. And that habit has to stop instantaneously or you're getting a 10-minute misconduct. 
I don't know. I'm giving, I'm honestly giving the players, even though ultimately they should be accountable for their actions, I'm giving them a bit of a mulligan on this because I think some of them have grown so accustomed to treating their mouth guard like, I don't know, chewing tobacco, something, a toothpick, I don't know, that it's hard to break instantly. Yeah, the point's well taken. I think we all probably have three or four habits that we haven't been able to break. And if you gave us a 10-minute misconduct every time we did it, we'd never leave our rooms, that kind of thing. Having said that, the uh, the flip side of that is I think, Mike, you probably remember, and maybe some of the older listeners remember, the OHL cracked down on chin straps. When players used to push their helmets way up, you could see their hair flowing out the front, and it got comical for a while, and then they had the crackdown and seemed unduly harsh at first, and there were a lot of those penalties, but really sometimes the quickest way to fix an issue is with the heavy hand because it may seem unfair at first, probably is unfair at first, uh, the change happens a little quicker than you might get it otherwise though. Uh, and we now see most of those chin straps well affixed in the OHL. I think that's a great point to end this part of the podcast on because I would suspect very strongly that in the week ahead, we will not see 22 mouth guard infractions and it will continue to go down and down until everybody has got this figured out. That's a great point. So let's move on then to, Obviously, other big news in the Ontario Hockey League this week, and I don't know if it's just me. I might have even alluded to this last week when we talked about Brennan Othman and the trade to Peterborough, but are moves being made sooner this year than in years past? And more to the point, are bigger moves being made sooner this year than in years past? Because we see the Guelph Storm trade their leading scorer from a year ago, Sasha Pastajoff, to the Sarnia Sting, and we see the Saginaw Spirit part with their team captain and Braden Hislop in a deal with the North Bay Battalion. But what's your take on, I mean, you can assess the trades or the timing of the trades or the size, if you will, of the players involved in the trades, but this has been a pretty significant week in the OHL trade pool. Yeah. And I think uh, ultimately I'm not surprised. Sorry, Mike, can you still hear me? I got you. Okay. Oh, sorry. just had a little blip there. I'm, I'm not surprised at the timing of the trades. I think that I expected to see some around this time of, uh, of year. I, I'm a little surprised to see Guelph throwing in the towel this early. I know they've had. I felt like there was enough on that roster to mine, at least a playoff spot. It's a little bit of a push this year. You have to figure how, how confused a, a GM like Mike McKenzie might be right now probably figuring he was going to be you know a buyer this year and instead of a buyer he's what do you do now team's been in misery and they've got a very veteran roster you can't trade them all so there's a few uh glitches we're seeing with with what's going on now and i just wonder behind the scenes with the trade you did see you've got Saginaw sitting on 29 points in 21 games trading those two players I wonder if some of these teams are capitalizing on some of that confusion in the market. Some teams saying, yeah, I don't know what we are. I, I'm, I'm not, we're not where we should be. I'm, I'm a little hesitant. I'm not going to pull the trigger. So the market was a little thinner for some of these guys, the Othmans and the Blooms, and those teams pounced. And if that's what's happening, kudos to them because they got, some of these players are going at some reasonable prices right now. But it's hard to understand what's going on behind the scenes because you'd have to think there might have potentially been some bidding wars on, on these guys if teams had uh, had waited. I would think the exact same thing. And I just want to make sure you're still hearing me okay here too. 
Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. We had just a little glitch here. If you're watching on YouTube, that's okay. That Dan disappeared for a second. He's right back here, and we're all good to go. But let's let's take them one at a time. First of all, I agree that prices and obviously the closer it gets to the trade deadline and the more desperation there might be in the market, the higher those prices can be. I think North Bay paid a pretty fair price for Josh Bloom and Braden Hislop. Govro and Sema are nice hockey players, draft picks involved in that too. But for me and for Adam Dennis, I look at that as the response to Mike Oak and the Peterborough Peets and saying, okay, we see your Brennan Othman and we'll raise you a former Saginaw captain along with a nice little bit nasty defenseman in Braden Hislop. 100%. There's a bit of an arms race going on in the East right now, and that's understandable. You had those teams that all expect to contend this year, and then a surprise contender in Nor in the Ottawa 67s, and you've got a little bit of an arms race building in the East, and they're looking at some talent in the West that could be mined. I think there's a lot of confusion in the West. You've got a team in, in the Windsor Spitfires saying, you know, we didn't expect to be this good. We're good. Uh, kudos to the Saginaw Spirit to some extent saying, you know, we weren't supposed to be a contender. We were supposed to be moving these guys. They're kind of sticking to the plan, but it, it has to make you wonder, does does a Pavel Minchikov now become a player on the market? Uh, or do they say, you know, well, we made our move. We, we capitalized on on these two players and we're going to, we're good now to roll. Um, it's a confusing year for, for followers of the league for me, for sure. Mike, cause I normally it's pretty easy to identify the buyers and the sellers and the players that are going to go. And right now there's, there's just some unexpected uh, teams in some unexpected categories, I guess you'd say. I'm going to pick up on that point in just a second, but let's go to the other significant deal this week and making me look incredibly foolish which let's be honest isn't that hard but Sasha Pastajoff traded by Guelph and I wondered if this is the white flag being waved in the Royal City because we all know that the Storm are performing well below expectations apparently no big deal Max Nemesnikov comes back the other way along with some picks and Nemesnikov just starts scoring goals picks up multi-points in, in both games uh, that he plays with Guelph, the Storm win both games, but Pastajoff gets traded, Guelph's leading scorer from a year ago, to a team in Sarnia, which is sneaky good, I want to say. I didn't expect Sarnia to be where they are. Now you add Pastajoff to the league's leading scorer still in Ty Voigt. They've got good goaltending in Sarnia, and all of a sudden you're asking yourself, maybe the Sting are uh, in it to win it this year in the West. Yeah, you know, Mike, you touched on a valid point there that I didn't consider uh overall with these trades, maybe it's not so much throwing in the towel as sometimes just changes the scenery are needed. Something's not working. There's a, a move made. It's not necessarily throwing in the towel. Like you mentioned, Nemesnikov comes in looks great right away in, in Guelph and Sarnia knows what they're getting in passage of. So maybe it was just a kickstart more than a throwing in of the towel. But when we're talking about looking foolish, Mike, uh, you're looking at the guy that picked Guelph to top this conference so i'm not sure why my my opinion has any validity or credibility anymore here so i but that quite possibly is what the guelph storm are thinking is that for whatever reason it's just not working with the mix we had identified a player or two that might fit what they're working towards and they're trying to recoup something here but it sure looks when you trade a, a player of past jobs ilk at this stage with the record you've got that it's a little bit of waving the white flag there is, uh, you're not the only one. There's no question that had the Guelph Storm predicted as a much higher player in the Western Conference 
this season. Which brings me to the next point I wanted to touch on when you were talking about the the power brokers and who they are. And you and I talked about this on an earlier episode of the podcast. It seems as though the East is farthest from least again this year, where the Peterboroughs and the North Bays and the Ottawas are all running pretty good right now. Mississauga is a good hockey club, etc. In the West, I I don't know, Dan, and I I can't I can't think of a time where at the quarter point of a season, particularly in the West, if we focus there, that I have not, like, I couldn't tell you today. I couldn't who the front runner is. I think Owen Sound's a nice team, but I don't see them running away with the Western Conference in the next three quarters of the season. I think Sarnia, as I just described them, a sneaky good team. Saginaw sitting on top as we talk. I don't expect that to to be the way the season ends. So who, who the hell is the power broker in the West this year? It is as bizarre as I've ever seen it, Mike. And I think, like, if you took the standings right now and flipped them on their head, you might you wouldn't be shocked. You would say, okay, this is kind of similar to what I thought the standings might look like. To maybe Sarnia probably wouldn't be as low, but it, it you could actually pass off the reverse standings as something more credible than what we're actually seeing. And it's 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 hard to believe you see some of these teams have come out of nowhere. And we talked about some of the complete disappointments. And Owen Sound is is that you mentioned is a great example. I think in the preseason predictions, I had them right on Guelph's heels. I just thought they suffered too many losses at the end of the season last year to to keep up with Guelph maybe this year. But they're like you said, they're a nice team with some nice pieces. And this conference is wide open. And it's it feels like you're just waiting for the next shoe to drop where some team says, hey, if we get this one piece, we're now the favorite. Because look who's on top of this conference. We, we can be the favorite with a move or two. Othman gets moved already. Pastajoff gets moved already. A former captain in Saginaw, Josh Bloom, gets moved already. Who knows what the next piece is going to be? But I think it's inevitable that a piece at some point between now and January the 10th is Shane Wright. Look, I'm not going to sit here and go all bananas and and say I could do it better or they're really screwing it up. But I, I will say in as diplomatic a fashion as I can – and I've got the utmost respect for Ron Francis, but I have no idea, zero, zilch, none, nada, what the Seattle Kraken are doing with Shane Wright, other than perhaps really hurting his development. Yeah, and you know, if this was a, a normal year when this had been his utilization, I think you and I would both be saying the same thing. The fact that this is happening after a year he lost to a pandemic, this is essentially, so he had a lost year, came back, tried to pick up the pieces, and now is having what looks like at least a lost couple of months. When you're playing, averaging six minutes a night when you do play and being scratched two or three out of every four nights, I don't understand where the development's coming from. You can only get so much from practice and soaking up the atmosphere at that level. We know 18- and 19-year-old players can't sit and still develop. So I don't know what their master plan is here. We're, we're hearing it's the conditioning stint in the AHL for a couple of weeks and then being released to Team Canada for the World Juniors. And I think the valid question that came up, and this is no slam on Shane Raid, who's a terrific all-around hockey player, does he even deserve a spot on Team Canada right now based on recent results and where his game probably is at today? That Team Canada roster looks awfully stacked to me at center. And uh, obviously he'll get a slot if Seattle releases him there, but it, you start to wonder where's his game at? Well, and let's add this to the mix. One of the knocks that I heard repeatedly against Shane Wright last year in his draft year and arguably why he fell to fourth was 
what did he do during the lost season in the OHL? Completely lost season. Some players found places to play in the United States. Other players found places to play in Europe. And look, not every player could have found a place to play, but Shane Wright certainly didn't find a place to play. And you'd think a guy of his caliber maybe had options, didn't do anything for that lost year. And I heard many people say that's why they thought his development was hurt and his draft stock fell. So if that lost year was seen as an impact prior to his NHL selection by Seattle, aren't we bordering on a half of a lost season this year, by the way, the Kraken are using them. Oh, a hundred percent you are. And, and just to add to that dynamic that you just described, if you're an OHL team, what are you trading for? Do you even know? Uh, well, like what assets do you give up? What, what price do you pay for a Shane Wright? Because you're paying for a whole lot of promise but not a whole lot of guarantee. And some of these guys that have gone already, you know pretty much what you're getting. Out of Brennan Othman, you might you might get 30 goals, you might get 38, but you're getting something in that realm. You know what you're getting. Shane Wright is a complete question mark and wild card right now. And someone's someone's gonna roll the dice at some point here. I think you're right, Mike, and and we'll we'll see what they get. Maybe we'll have a better idea of what they're getting after we see Shane Wright play for Team Canada. Maybe. Yeah. If he ends up where many expect him to end up, and that is in Peterborough with his friend Brennan Offman, maybe that is rejuvenating for Shane Wright. We shall see. Okay, let's see. I don't think it's been any rejuvenation in St. Catharines with the Niagara Ice Dogs, certainly not the likes of which we saw in Sudbury. Sudbury releases Craig Duncanson, hires Derek McKenzie as Derek is transitioning from his home in Florida to his hometown of Sudbury. His dad, Ken, takes over. And K-Mac certainly seemed to light a fire before D-Mac could get there to take over the Wolves. That's older news. But just as we were signing off our recorded episode last week, the Niagara Ice Dogs announced the dismissal of Daniel Fitzgerald. I'm kind of like earlier, Dan, when I kind of gave the players a mulligan on if you've got a habit of chewing on your mouth guard, this is pretty harsh. What is a coach going to do with a roster that has like on ice that has been turned over like it has been in St. Catharines this year. 20, two zero trades by the Ice Dogs since June the 30th of this year. How is a coach supposed to develop anything with a group that changes so much? It's a really fair question. And, and you know, maybe Daniel Fitzgerald's the victim of, they had run out of cards to trade, so they had to move someone. It had been a week. Uh, it's Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to know what's going on at Niagara. And, and full disclosure, I haven't, I've only watched the Niagara Ice Dogs twice this year to get a sense of what they are, but we kind of had an idea going in. It was a rebuild year. They were they were going to be younger. They made some moves to get older. I don't know if they unrealistically thought they were going to be better based on those moves. I, I think what you're really doing with that roster is trying to establish a little bit of a culture there maybe and teach some mentor some of the younger kids. Maybe they foolishly thought, the new owners thought, no, we're going to win. We're going to try and win this year. They're already talking about a Memorial Cup bid. From the outside, to me, it just looks like maybe they're a little bit ahead of themselves and maybe some unrealistic expectations. Saying that, I haven't watched enough of the Niagara Ice Dogs this year to say for sure were there tons of on-ice issues and system issues and organization issues on the ice. So, uh, But from the standpoint of an outsider looking in at Daniel Fitzgerald losing his job at this point, it just seems like there's a little bit of a circus in Niagara right now, and I'm not, I'm not sure it was fair to expect much more of the coach this year. I don't disagree with any of that. And I will add, because you mentioned it, and it's on my mind too, the Memorial Cup bid. In my opinion, 
it was already going to be scrutinized closely because of the number of trades this season. You're going to have to pay attention to that and determine, is this a team that has the organizational structure to pull off Memorial Cup hosting next year? Not only that, but have the team on the ice that's going to compete. And this, to me, is another indicator that maybe, just maybe, it's not the right environment for the Canadian Junior Hockey Championship about 18 months from now. Another extremely fair point, because I I, I think one underrated aspect, or I'll even say criteria, that some of these people look at when they're evaluating an organization, either as a player to come to an organization or as a league looking to maybe award a Memorial Cup, is stability. Stability is a critical factor. They want to know they have a stable staff, a stable environment. And I'd say Niagara appears to be anything but stable right now. And I don't know all the causes of that, but from an outsider's view, it's an unstable situation to start looking at things like, do we put the Memorial Cup there? All right. Uh, I had the, I had the good fortune of being in Guelph this past weekend for Ryan Callahan day, I guess is the best way to put it as the former storm captain had his number raised into the rafters. It was a really cool experience for a number of reasons. I'm a little bit nostalgic about Guelph because that's where I started my OHL broadcasting career. And for those sick of hearing the stories, I promise I won't go deeply into that. We'll talk about Callahan uh, just before we wrap up here today, but we always like to get to our prospects of the week. So Dansky, who do you got this week? All right. Well, I had a guy I was eyeing actually last week. He was on my honorable mentions. I I intentionally waited because I knew I was going to get a look at him this week. So my prospect of the week is going to be Ethan Miedema. And I selecting him as a B-rated skater for the NHL draft and just projectability, everything you project for a pro player. Obviously, you got the 6'4", 200-pound player. That part's obvious. But a little bit of craft in his game. You see, uh, you know, almost a point a game already, a dozen assists, a solid plus minus on a on a team that was supposed to be rebuilding in Windsor. And you look at all the reasons why they're not rebuilding. They're actually right near the top of the standings. And he jumps out at me as one of the key reasons, kind of jumping off the map at you right now as the development curve is ramping up highly. So my my prospect of the week is, is Ethan Miedema. All right. Uh, I'm staying in the Western Conference, too, and I am 100% going for the flavor of the week or the flavor of the moment. And if I had really done my homework, I would have gone back to listen to hear if I gave this guy an honorable mention before. I don't think I did, but I know in doing my analysis, I did have him on my radar one week when he had a hat trick plus another goal for a four goal week. But this time it's four in a game, including the OT winner. So Hello, Angus McDonnell of the Sarnia Sting. That performance alone makes you the prospect to me that stood out most over this past week. And listen, let's not underestimate the kid. I know that he was given that C label from NHL Central Scouting a month or so ago, which puts him, you know, rounds five through seven kind of thing in the June draft. I'm not saying that one four-point game catapults him up that, but this is a guy that comes out of the GTHL where we know some of the best and brightest have come in the past. He wore a C there with the Marlboros organization. And even when there was an entirely lost season, this kid worked his tail off, pounding shots at the backyard net again and again and again. And maybe that's how he had the four-goal performance, including the OT winner in a game this week. Angus McDonnell, you get my not as prospect of the week. Great pick, Mike. And I, I, I had to leave Angus for you because... 
I, I had a feeling you might you might go there, and I don't want the Sarnia sting on your case. I, I we we haven't given them enough love. They're doing a, a having a terrific year and a great choice. Maybe it's because you remember I did actually mention. I'm pretty sure his name came up. I know he was on my radar earlier, so and I might have mentioned him when he was on the list that week, or at least in my mind. Okay, uh, before we sign off, uh, and and quickly before we get to Ryan Callahan, I wanted to share a great email we got from Joe, uh, who sent an email to. Uh, OHL podcast at rogers.com. And I want to remind you that you can do that anytime. Uh, Ty sent a message as well and asked about a couple of guests he wanted to hear from. And two of those guests we've already got lined up for future Friday episodes. So we're happy to hear those things. OHL podcast at rogers.com is the email. Joe is one of our listeners south of the border. He's from Rhode Island. And my favorite part about this is Joe is a fellow radio guy. So we're speaking the same language here, Joseph. And he describes himself as probably the biggest CHL fan in the United States. Now that's, that's bold. I don't know, Joe, but that's a bold statement to make, especially when there are three U.S.-based teams in the Ontario Hockey League. And my buddy Rex Stevens, for example, out of Erie, might want to fight Joe for that title of biggest fan of the CHL in the United States. But Joe just stumbled upon our podcast, Dan, and has really been enjoying it. So I wanted to just uh, give him a shout-out here, thank him for the email, remind you that you can email ohlpodcast at rogers.com. And, hey, wherever you're listening from, we're here. Give us the feedback, criticism, positive, negative, whatever it happens to be. We love hearing from you. Yeah. Thanks for listening, Joe. Great. You stumbled upon us and then I'm already putting in the application as Providence as the next OHL team. So great, great to have a listener in, in Rhode Island, the wonderful state of Rhode Island. He says he spends most of his time just based on geography, following the queue and what we're able to provide on these Tuesday episodes of our OHL podcast is that information about the league itself and what's going on in the O because look, Lots of people covering the league really well and doing some great stuff podcasting-wise and otherwise. But Joe found us, really liked our conversation last week about the arena fiasco in Hamilton, the Brennan Offman trade, just giving him a little bit more of insight that what goes on you know, off the ice or around the league as opposed to, did you see that game last night? Here's what happened. So glad he can be here for that. Yeah, it's awesome. Thanks for listening, Joel. That's great that you enjoyed the conversation. Makes our day. All right. A guy that uh, captained an Ontario Hockey League team. I'm, I'm thinking as I go through this of what accolade to put first. I mean, the C on the jersey is one thing. Uh, another thing I think to remember about this guy is that he almost finished his junior career as a London Knight. The captain of the Guelph Storm, who was the captain of the team when they won their OHL championship in 2004, almost got traded to the London Knights the next year. But he himself said, nope, I want to stay here and finish as a storm. But hard, Dan, to uh, to find a guy that better embodies a competitive spirit and a captaincy than Ryan Callahan, who was recognized on Saturday before the Storm Rangers game. Well, Mike, growing up as a Kitchener Rangers fan, as you know, I'm a diehard Montreal Canadiens fan. All you need to know about how good Ryan Callahan is is how much I hated him. (laughs) This guy playing for the Guelph Storm, the Tampa Bay Lightning, the New York Rangers. This guy seemed to always be filling the nets of the team I liked and team I was cheering for. Uh, But I mean that with the utmost respect to Ryan Callahan. I think we heard through the tribute on Saturday what a phenomenal team guy he was, how he treated all the team the same, regardless of where you ranked in that dressing room hierarchy. 
prankster he was, fun guy, uh, grounded with great parents, uh, great relationship with his billet family. You saw that stuff in the tribute. Um, but what should never be lost is is what he was on the ice and both a leader, uh, not the biggest guy, ton of grit, never backed down from anything and just found a way to score big goals at the most critical times. One of the most ridiculous playoff performances I've seen from an OHL player. Um, so yeah, big tip of the cat and cap and congratulations to Ryan Callahan, one of the most memorable OHL players, um, especially for Guelph. I was really glad that the ceremony happened when it did that the Kitchener Rangers happened to be in town that day because I started my OHL broadcasting career in Guelph. I was covering the team when Callahan was its captain. I got to know his dad actually pretty well through his time there. So you talk about that upbringing and keeping Ryan grounded. Mike had a lot to do with that for sure. So lots to love about it. And for me, it's still nostalgic going back to Guelph. I'll tell you, I, I run into even people that, our staff at the arena, which would make them municipal staff in the city of Guelph. But I'm thinking of Gary Botter, his son, Blake. I mean, these guys are, are simply awesome human beings. And it's it just, it's nice for me to go back. So to have that happen then uh, on a night that I happened to be in the building just because of my job was terrific. And I want to also shout out. So the broadcast location in Guelph is up on the suites level at the Sleeman Center. Uh, so obviously that's where Callahan and all of the former players were Adam Dennis, of course, now the GM in North Bay. We talked about him earlier on the podcast. He came strolling in. We crossed paths. He was in Kitchener on Friday. It's like, Hey, we're seeing each other all over the place, but you name it. He was there. Dan Paye, Marty St. Pierre, it just goes on and on. So too, though, was Rusty Hammond and, and Doug maybe who were former, uh, the trainer, athletic therapist, head equipment guy in Guelph. And I saw them in, in the suite, the Callahan suite, which they renamed number or renumbered number 24 on Saturday. Uh, and I didn't want to just barge in, but just showing the kind of character that they have, both Rusty and Doug came over to the broadcast booth and said, it wouldn't feel right if we were here without saying hi for all the years you spend just, you know, you're almost like colleagues over the course of a season even when I wasn't in Guelph anymore, you're still seeing them eight times a year as a member of the Kitchener Rangers organization. So it just goes on and on. Speaks to the character of the individuals. Ryan Callahan was a great character. Dougie and Rusty were great guys and, and so many others we could talk about. It was terrific all around. I'm going to stop gushing about Guelph, but I have fond memories. Still love going back there. And how about the way Callahan finished his speech on Saturday, Dan? <laughs> oh, that was that was classic primo speech writing right there. So Ryan, I don't know if you wrote that yourself or someone gave it to you, but, but what a way to finish. And I'm sure it was not a mistake that Ryan Callahan night was when Kitchener was in town. Um, as I stand here today, you know, I think back 20 years ago, I walked into this building as a 17 year old 15th round draft pick, just praying and hoping that I could make this team. Now to fast forward to tonight, I can't thank the Guelph Storm organization enough for this incredible night. I think you go through your career and you're so focused on the present and the now that you don't really realize or reflect on all the people that have helped you along the way. And I've had so much help to get to this point in my career and my life. First and foremost, thank you to the Guelph Storm organization, the Guelph community, and you fans for filling this building every night. 
I couldn't think of a better junior city to play hockey in, and my four years here were absolutely amazing. As we know in hockey, you don't make it to where you get without good teammates, and trust me, I had a lot of good players I played with. I look back at that 2004 championship team, and I was in a line with Brett Trudell and Marty St. Pierre. And Marty, the amount of tap-in back goals I had from you, we saw them on the video, was absolutely incredible. Two years later, I was playing with Matt D'Agostini and Kelsey Wilson. We had so much fun on the ice and just as much fun off the ice. Boys, it was a pleasure playing with all of you. To my roommates, Adam Dennis, Mike McLean, couldn't have picked two better guys to live with and continue to call my friends. I'd also like to thank my two Billet families I lived with, Joe and um, Angie and Bernie Taller. Thank you much for opening up your home and allowing me in. To Joe and Linda Migalacho, their kids, Ryan and Daniela, I honestly can't thank you guys enough for what you did for me. There's not enough thank yous. I, you guys were my Billet family, but I consider you my family, and I still do do today. I love you guys. I just want to thank my parents um, for everything. Their dedication, their time, the money, everything they put in to let me try to live my dream. I would have never made it to this point without you guys. I can't thank you enough. Thank you to my brother for always pushing me. He was six years older. He beat the hell out of me constantly, but I, I think that's what made me so tough on the ice. I'd also like to thank my wife, Kyla. Uh, she is an absolute rock at home. I would have never made it in my career without your support, without your love. Um, I don't know how you did it. I couldn't have done it, but thank you. To, to my kids, Charlotte, Evelyn, and Dominic, I love you guys. This night is so special, but to have you guys here and spare, share this moment with me, it means everything. And boys, I know you want to get on the ice and play, so I'll shut up. And I'll tell you one thing, I said it to you guys in the room, one of my favorite moments when I played here in Guelph was beating the Kitchener Rangers. So get it done tonight, boys. Thank you. And of course, the way he finished that speech really did fire up the team, and they laid a pretty good lick on the Rangers. Final score was 5-3, but it was 5-1 at one point, and the Rangers got a couple late. Uh, it's interesting, Dan, that you had just talked about uh, how good a player Ryan Callahan must have been, because as a Ranger fan and Montreal fan, you hated him because of how good uh, he was against the teams that you cheered for. This Friday on the OHL podcast might be then your least favorite guest ever because if you did indeed, and I know you did grow up a Kitchener Rangers fan, you will remember what is widely regarded as the greatest Memorial cup of all time, the championship that put junior hockey on the map in this country. And frankly, the final that some call the greatest game of all time. And we've got one of the captains in that game. Oh, on the podcast on Friday, but it's not the captain of the team that you cheered for. <laughs> well, I was at that game and I can attest to probably the greatest game I've seen, certainly live. So 
really looking forward to that pod. It's coming out on Friday. You get two of these episodes every week. It's called the OHL podcast. Please give it a like, subscribe, leave us a review, send an email anytime, ohlpodcast at rogers.com. That's Dan Mahar on Twitter, at Tim Wallach, just like the former Montreal Expo. I'm Mike Farwell, at Farwell underscore OHL, the captain of the 1990 Memorial Cup champions on the OHL podcast on Friday. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.